Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by Humanitarian AI meetup groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Christopher Hoffman, and today I'll be guest hosting an interview with Gerd Buda, who is heading up the World Food Program's in-kind operations in Ukraine. Gerd also recently advised the World Food Program's Innovation Accelerator, and it's really great to have you here. We've met before face-to-face, so it's nice to uh, to talk to a familiar person. Welcome, Gerd. Thanks, Christopher. It's a pleasure to be here and looking forward to an interesting discussion. I remember we last met in in Poland and with startups and other organizations that were trying to find innovative solutions in support of the humanitarian sector. The only thing was at that time was summer and hot. Now it's <laughs> minus eight degrees here in Kiev and very, very cold, but um, glad to be able to talk to you. It's great to talk to you too. And I hope that you're safe. And, you know, I mean, every day I'm getting pinged on my phone telling me that there's another missile strike or something else is happening, especially on the infrastructure. And we're going to get to that later in the conversation to kind of talk about how how we've seen technology really burgeon in, mm-hmm. in the response in Ukraine, but at the same time, how every day it's becoming a, a more and more uh, difficult to utilize a lot of this technology because of, of these issues. Maybe just to start a little bit about what's going on. So, I mean, can you just give us an idea of the scale and the severity of what you're seeing? Because I know you've been in the field. The last time we spoke, you were like, I'm headed out to to uh, Kherson, um to go and see what's going on out there and be able to, to do your work. So what's it really looking like on the ground? Yeah, well, since the operation started, WFP alone has been able to, to support some 3 million people on a monthly basis. And this is obviously not the scale of everything that what is happening. Some 12 million people have been displaced either with them being in the country, um, around Ukraine, but also uh, in Europe where they, where they are displaced. The situation is quite volatile, I must say. So you mentioned Kherson. It's, it's an area, it's a very strategic area for, for Ukraine. It's a port city a connection to Crimea. It's a city representing also connections to Dnipro River. And so lots of trade has been happening before in Kherson, um, not anymore, unfortunately. But Kherson represents a bit the situation on how the contact line between the two countries um, and between the two armies continuously changes. So cities that have been liberated from the Ukrainian side might fall back in a, into occupation and vice versa. And that is definitely a challenge when it comes to humanitarian sector to respond to the needs on the ground and, and certainly much more challenging because we, as humanitarians, we would want to know in advance what is going to happen, but but it's impossible to foresee how, how the conflict will develop. Um, to add on top of that, definitely, and I mentioned the cold, uh, the cold temperatures here. Winter is has come actually, and with that also huge problem in gas uh, supplies, in electricity supplies, in water supplies. Generally, the whole connectivity is um, is hampered, and therefore also somehow the the needs on the ground are 
also multiplied by the factor that we are in winter now and we are in this in this very difficult situation for for people not only living in the very vicinity and in the areas that are affected by war and when there is still fighting going on but also generally around Ukraine we um, have alarms of bombings um, every day so the the team constantly works from safe rooms which are you know sometimes not the best location to work sure. from but this is overall the situation as we as we speak yeah. and you know i mean wfp is the king of logistics when it comes to humanitarian action and so when you're when you're moving into winter and and we're going to talk about more about the non food kind of stuff that you do what are some of the stumbling blocks that you're facing in logistics and how are you overcoming them obviously we talk about infrastructure and and that um because we move we have moved around 150,000 metric tons of food so far from from march all this required huge effort in sense of transportation warehousing everything that has to do with logistics um at the beginning of the operation the challenges were more into finding companies and and people drivers that will drive in those areas and more and more small medium and, and large scale companies in ukraine came forward and, and now are supporting actually our our logistical operations on top of that definitely the the level of destruction and the type of arms being used in this conflict is by way larger than in conflicts that i at least have seen so uh, large scale damage on infrastructure and this includes roads um this includes bridges um key and critical infrastructure for which we rely on when we when we transport food to to the affected areas has technology helped us yes um satellite imagery and this is something that we want to work in the future has had an initial impact on on knowing what is happening on a daily basis we need safe routes we need roads that we can use there is a layer of complexity also when it comes to mining newly liberated areas usually have heavily mined not only areas and agricultural land primarily but also sometimes roads so that represents also a bit of a challenge so you know satellite imageries have been um, helpful not only to to show us what's the situation with primarily with roads and this kind of infrastructure but also for example looking into occupied areas or newly liberated areas you know newly accessible how we call them to help us estimate the number of uh, people that are living on these areas and there are different types of tools that can help us with a certain level of with a certain level of of insurance that you know this is the number of people that is uh, living in this area and therefore for us it's super critical this information is super critical because then we can we can plan properly another kind of information that we are looking into and that's also in on infrastructure and definitely affects also our logistics is market the functionality of the markets is key yeah. for us um we are operating and we sit on the third largest food basket of the world 
and it's quite bizarre to actually for WFP to be in the country uh, before the conflict we were procuring food to send it um, somewhere else and there is an initiative within our operations that is currently shipping wheat grains from the port of Odessa to other WFP operations but going back to the local markets is where we want to support local economy as well and so knowing how this particular infrastructure develops our market uh, revitalized uh, re-established uh, what kind of types of food are there all these i think it's information that through te- technology we can collect because it's impossible for us to be in the field and there where information needs to come from we cannot access and therefore the role of technology then becomes vital i would say yeah it's so true. I mean, diving into this, when we talk about this response, I mean, there's a lot of, of chatter in the humanitarian sector about this being a, a very heavy cash response, right? So a lot of cash being distributed throughout the response. And, and you you sit on, I wouldn't say the other side, but a, an adjacent side to that, which is what we would say is typically going to sit around, you know, NFIs, but also potentially vouchers yeah. and, and also kind of, of other pieces. Have you been able to I mean, even on top of that, WFP's got some pretty cool technology. They're using blockchain yeah. for their building blocks, yeah. uh, you know, deduplication software and all these other things. Yeah. Can you walk me through what you guys are thinking or what you think the potential utilization of these types of tools are to grow? You know, so how do you link companies yeah. through vouchers and this type of thing using technology? So just to give you a couple of figures before I answer to your question. We have two types of modalities that we work through um, as for WFP Ukraine. By now, we are the largest cash operator in Ukraine when it comes to humanitarian response. We have 2 million unique beneficiaries that we have supported through cash donations. It's a massive operation to cash compared to other operations. And, you know, the reasons why, obviously, is because Ukraine has a functional market in stable areas. But the challenge is... I think here in in Ukraine, and, and we had a uh, and we had a chat together when we met in in Warsaw on the event organized by Google. It's that piece on registration. So first of all, the martial law has brought some um, some challenges when it comes to data sharing. To tell you the truth, the let's say the data sharing, especially when it comes to personal data and the Ukrainian legal framework was also quite rigid even before the conflict the the conflict and uh, the martial law in place has made the work of humanitarian organizations operating with cash even more uh, challenging and um, one of the things that we discussed together was self-registration and all kind of uh, solutions that humanitarian organizations are or are thinking to use self-registration obviously is one and, and you can have very different types of of platforms that can collect needs and can collect also beyond needs also personal data that is so useful for for especially for cash operations but nowadays even for food in-kind operations this uh, this kind of solutions are very much required in the humanitarian sector then definitely ways of sending cash, but in the absence of financial institutions, those kind of uh, solutions 
are really interesting. You can imagine needing to support populations that are at the moment occupied, but without a financial institution that can help you, but with a functional market on the other hand, it's quite critical to find ways of um, how to how to support people on the, on that other side of the contact line with the absence of financial institutions. So I would say two are the main topics, elements or challenges, if you will, when it comes to cash operations, data and financial institutions and all that comes with types of solutions in that area. I would love to build on that a little bit more because I know that that some organizations now have linked with certain market providers and are able to, over APIs actually, be able to share vouchers into their their own uh, existing CRM as an organization and they'd be able yep. to distribute vouchers that way, right? So, I, so I, I think you're right. I think there's a lot there that's happening in Ukraine that's never happened before at scale and different responses, and I, and I think it's continuing to grow. So I really I really appreciate your comments on that. You know, if we look at this and we look at what's going on with the Ukraine response, do you have like a wish list? I know you mentioned satellite imagery and the ability to engage with that. I mean, with that, there's a lot of AI components where you're mm-hmm. you're able to you know run code over those pictures and be able to identify mm-hmm. what is mm-hmm. where and and et cetera. But what are some of the other things? I mean, given your experience in different responses, given your experience in other places, what do you think you see in Ukraine that could provide some some really impactful assistance? Because the data piece, to me, and you've honed in on it. I mean, this data that we have is pretty robust, right? And I mean, there's hundreds of millions of data points that have been collected already. How are we using that data? And you talked about data sharing. So the issue of data sharing is there. But if data sharing was open, right, in an encrypted or in a a safe and protected way, what do you think we could use that data for? What do you think we we would be able to do? What do you think we could code that would allow us to, to make better decisions over that data set? Well, I think one major concern that we have when it comes to uh, to cash operations, but not necessarily only regarding cash, generally humanitarian operations start with what we call a blanket approach. So we assume that everybody is affected after, after a tsunami or natural disaster of any kind or even um, after war. But as you progress you would hope and you would assume that certain people who are more resilient make it out of that red zone where where they are considered vulnerable, either because they find a job or because they have savings. Uh, for, for a variety of reasons, people are resilient in nature. So, But there are also those that we need to continue to support. And therefore, then targeting and, and in a way, the selection of the right targeting criteria becomes becomes a major part of your operations. And so we are in that process right now and, and we want to to within that large amount of information when it comes to the different people that we have that we have targeted, we would want to now select those most vulnerable. So I think, you know, in a way it will be really useful to start thinking of integrating all this, all, all those data, you know, beneficiary data might be only only one part of the story. Um, I'm sure that many partners do collect other types of information um, 
you know, thematic, uh, by thematic. So one could look at markets, another could look at security, another can look at accessibility, and all those kind of data points. If we find a way through technology to overlay these, um, and so that for us as humanitarians, the areas which are more vulnerable and therefore where where and especially people living in those areas then become our upper priority we are supporting and also the um, we, we are supporting the ministry of social policy um together with with other partners un agencies and ngos in that in that process of integrating the different data sets that the ministry of social policy has but it, it, it is very siloed. Um, so they have uh, different categories of people that that they support within their broader social policy and programs. But these data are are quite siloed, even when it comes to to this government. Um, and so I think that starting to integrate those data and looking at this probably big data that we might find in our in our hands would only increase the efficiency and effectiveness and of our operations and when i say effectiveness and and efficiency it means every dollar counts let's not just spread it all over but let's now use that information use technology to tell us who are the most vulnerable where do they live and what kind of assistance would they need in the future absolutely another question i want to ask is Sometimes it's not rules that stop us from from working together on these large data sets, right? Sometimes it's institutional. And, and it's not just about the government's rules on data sharing. It's about our rules on data sharing. Absolutely. Right? And, and when you look at this, because of the amount, the vast amount of data that's been able to be collected in this response because of where it is and because of the connectivity, even during mm-hmm. war, the connectivity has remained, you know, relatively consistent. What do you think is the future of humanitarian data sharing? I mean, what, or what, what do you want for the future to be for humanitarian data sharing? It's a very pertinent question and, and a question that has been raised in each and every humanitarian operation, I would guess. And within the humanitarian sector, everywhere you look, I think that you will find the same challenge of the different UN agencies and NGOs and government and private sector to be able to to share information. I think that in Ukraine, the role of the clusters, as you might know, as uh, key platforms for coordinating the work of the different UN agencies and NGOs, and generally including the government, has played a critical role to share information. But we don't go beyond only sharing. So we really need to call upon technology also in being able to intelligently analyze that information in a way uh, for us to, to, to build such systems that, uh, again, work on the increased effectiveness and, and efficiency when it comes to, you know, what areas do we address? What kind of problems do we address? Who are the people that we are, that we are supporting? Um, as I said, the clusters are a key platforms as we speak. But they also use, for example, outdated type of tools such as, uh, you know, Excel sheets that are useful, but but maybe not um, as useful as as shareable or open source data. 
or even if you go a bit further you know um, there is a bit of uh, there is lack of putting the data together putting the information together so that you see a complete picture rather than puzzles every now uh, for each organization <laughs> a different puzzle and therefore also not an effective response when you think of the humanitarian sector as a whole, I would say. Yeah. No, I, I love that analogy. I like, I think about it is if I kind of had 10, 10 puzzles, right? Yeah. And I took all those pieces and I put them all in one box. And then how long would it take me to make the 10 puzzles out of all the puzzle pieces being in one box, right? It would take me forever. And that's the beauty of, of AI and, and, you know, even central to our conversation and kind of where I was hoping we would head. So that's, that. it's really awesome. But this reality that, that we have everything that we need. What we don't have is the ability to, to provide analysis and, and AI and the ability to be able to, to scrub and to clean and to, to anonymize and to ensure that what we're looking at are the data points, not the people specifically, right? But the data points and then being able to come back to the people after we've yeah. looked at the data sets, right? Absolutely. And, you know, th there's a lot of growth in that, place i mean and when growth i mean you know it's it's like a baby but you know it's not like it's a it's a 20 year old right but it's it's a baby but but there are a lot of people out there thinking about how to share data in an anonymous way that allows us to analyze it target it and then push it back into to this and, and blockchain is one of those pieces that a lot of people have been talking about but haven't we, we haven't found that right use case or not the right use case but but the the successful story Maybe maybe that's the issue. Well, we used it in in uh, in the operation, as you mentioned, to avoid duplication of cases, and and it worked quite well. But I think five or actually seven years back, I was uh, sitting in Kiev and I was heading the working with Ukraine at that point, also with WFP. But at that point, it, the the conflict was just limited uh, to Crimea, Luhansk, and Donetsk. And uh, we had operations there. I was heading the vulnerability and assessment and monitoring unit. And of course, you would understand the unit managed quite a lot in sense of data gathering and, and analysis. I remember at the time, at least for WFP, we were moving into these remote monitoring and remote data collection. So basically, everything um, involving telephone calls, internet types of questionnaires, however we could reach the people that we were not able to reach because of the conflict, right? And I and I still remember the reluctancy of of generally everybody um, when it comes <laughs> to other UN agencies and NGOs and the government to say, Oh, but you have collected this data remotely and through combined it with satellite images. So there was a bit of tendency to to still believe that face-to-face -face interviews are better or more reliable than than data collected through through other so through technology basically, right? Yeah, yeah. So then we had to go through a process of a control group between face-to-face -face exactly. and technology-collected yeah. data, and we saw that there. there was no changes <laughs> whatsoever. So, I mean, exactly. small changes, but it, but uh, that was maybe because of the different teams that... Uh, it was a human error at the end of the, of, of, of the day. So, 
if I have to think today, blockchain, yeah, people might be still a bit afraid from, not afraid, but concerned over the role of technology and, and how much it should take place into our humanitarian operations. It's a question mark. I don't have the answer, but I see the more we include technology into day-to-day uh, day -day work, I see only positive outcomes. I see only more effectiveness and more efficiency. Hence, I would say, scale it up. Absolutely. I love it. And the points that you make are so poignant because it's so true. There is a, an inherent fear that I feel in the sector directly associated with the use of technology. There's an inherent reluctance on belief. And I find the juxtaposition that that brings to us is the idea that we all use it as humanitarians for our daily lives. And I always struggle with this in that, hold on, you, you use a phone, you talk to KLM <laughs> over WhatsApp, you do all this, but yet you don't want to do it when you're helping other people. And, and, and I'm so struggling with that. I mean, yeah. Do you have any insight as to why that is? Because I can't figure it out. Exactly. So, I mean, I don't know if this is um, an age issue. You know, some people also so send cash. And uh, sometimes we use also transferring cash through mobile cash, through telephones. Sometimes people ask, well, do does an 80-year-old living in Luhansk has telephone and uh, and connectivity and, and all that, I would say nowadays in Ukraine, I mean, the country is so vibrant with so much of, of computer literacy and overall educational levels. If not in Ukraine, where else then we should try um, exactly. the type of the, the role of, of, of technology. So we should all show a bit more appetite and, and be a bit more savvy on, you know, technology driving our not only implementation but even design of our of our operations uh, quite honestly so full circle if you use technology i would go all the way you know there's i've been dealing with two schools of thought the the one school of thought has been presented to me as you know don't waste a crisis to really innovate and and figure out the best ways of doing things right mm -hmm. and and I hate the term don't waste a crisis, but what I mean by that is utilize this supple yeah. opportunity to really change the way things work. Then the other side of it is don't build a plane while you're flying it in the middle of an emergency, right? Yeah. And so these two pieces are constantly at odds with each other. And I kind of think that innovation, obviously innovation thrives when there's a gap. When you notice something and then people want to, and, and many people knew the gap was there but didn't have the the road, the the conduit for them yeah. to, to engage on. But at the same time, you're dealing with vulnerable people. And so, I mean, yeah. kind of as the last point, as we come to a close, I just wanted to ask your thoughts. And this is a tough one. This is a philosophical one. This is this is a tough question. But, but really and truly, how do you build a plane while you're flying it without endangering all the people on the airplane? Yeah, <laughs> you know? it is a big question. I mean... I spent two years working in Munich for the World Food Program Innovation Accelerator there. The driving motto of the accelerator was, was fail and scale, right? So, but you need to fail from the perspective of we were sitting in a safe place. So, of course, we could 
we should we should have failed. I mean, most of our innovative ideas were great, and we thought we found the solution, right? Finally. And then when we started to you know implement it in the field, test it, we realized, well, maybe not. And so 50% of the ideas that were presented to us run then didn't find an application within World Food Program. 50% went into a six-month test. Only 10% of those made it into a more solid scale-up program that we ported these ideas with. And few of them actually made it at real scale, which means these solutions or products made it to corporate solutions and, and products. So the the way how uh, technology, at least within the accelerator, is by being being open to failure now. Now, the situation on the ground here in Ukraine, but in most of the emergency situations that we are in, is you cannot really allow yourself to fail. It's about people's life, and you want to make sure that you are making all the necessary or you are taking all the necessary and safe steps to reach more people on the ground and i get you it's it's a very tough choice to try that other solution when it comes to you know next the next day you need to be somewhere with x amount of metric tons of food or, or that amount of cash but I think that there are also safe uh, safe areas, like, for example, we discussed about data sharing is nothing that can stop the organizations putting uh, a working group together on, on and thinking of, okay, we, we sit on so much data, how can we integrate it and analyze it together? Quite honestly, I would, I would think that that would avoid even some biases that we as UN organizations on NGOs focus on a specific mandate and that kind of unbiased analysis will really help us to to go beyond that that framework mandate and the way that we think and, and and give us the opportunity to look at what others are doing and what the real needs are sometimes on on the ground so it is difficult but we need to start from somewhere otherwise you know there it is no time to be old and obsolete because um because emergencies, actually those related to climate, but also uh, man-made conflict is increasing in frequency and intensity, and we need to find better solutions because the status quo and the way we do business at the moment, it's far from being uh, really effective and really efficient. So technology, I think, is, is and should be the solution. Absolutely. Well, Gerd Buda, I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to speak with me. I know... You're in Kiev. It's minus eight. You've got electricity about uh, a quarter of the day, and and there's so much more going on, and you're super busy. So I want to thank you for that, and and I want to encourage everybody that's listening to the podcast to to dive into the chat and really talk about how you feel that AI and what you think about the futuristic use of of AI in humanitarian settings can really make a difference. And and if any of you are out there and want to contribute. You know, there's a lot of folks that um, that are helping and, you know, getting into the analysis piece, offering solutions. Please write it into the chat. Let us know what you think and really um, start to help the humanitarian sector make that leap, that significant jump that it needs to make to be able to assist people in need in both really remote places 
but also places that we're facing right now in Europe. And so, Gerbuda, I really appreciate your time today and this evening, and I want to thank you. And uh, any last words before we close? No, thanks, Christopher. It was a pleasure. And I hope that more people will listen to us and join the effort. So really help, um, really helpful, but also looking forward to whoever might have questions and want to learn more. But most importantly, all those that, uh, that would like to help, super interested to get in touch. And uh, yeah, looking forward to contributions like those. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, this is Chris Hoffman for Humanitarian AI Today. And uh, I really want to appreciate everybody that's been involved and all of the, the different groups that are out there that are part of this. Thanks for your support and thanks for everything that you're doing. Have a great night and talk to you soon. Bye-bye.